EarthUp, our sponsor for the month of September. EarthUp enables employers to crowdsource corporate emissions reductions from their employees. This bottom-up approach reduces costs for sustainability teams while de-risking a company's emissions reduction strategy. Hi everyone, welcome back to ESG Decoded. This is Amanda Shea, and to do it today, I have Jace Hafner with me from Farm Raise. I'm really excited to talk to her um, about what she's doing to help promote more sustainable and regenerative agriculture. Jace is the CEO and founder of Farm Raise. So Jace, hi, how are you? Hi, Amanda, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for making time for this. It's so interesting what you're doing with the Farm Race platform. So I want to make sure our listeners understand what's ha- what's happening in agriculture. And I was thinking, of, I looked it up actually um, between our intro call and today. I was like, I wonder how how big is agriculture a contributor to greenhouse gas and kind of overall climate change? And it was interesting because energy, of course, is the biggest chunk, let's say, um, but the second biggest one is actually, it's kind of combined, but agriculture, forestry, and land use all together makes up the second like biggest slice of the pie when we look at which sectors are you know, our biggest contributors to greenhouse gas emissions. But at the same time, I think agriculture is also a huge opportunity in helping us address um, climate change and helping to draw down uh, carbon dioxide and carbon emissions and stored in carbon, as well as, you know, address and help to address issues around water quality and and quantity as as some of our folks i think in the midwest and maybe more the west are feeling but anyways let's start at the beginning tell us about farm race yeah absolutely and you know bringing in this climate angle here i think is really smart and it's what inspires us at farm race and it's it's part of our mission to build resilience in farming communities and there's a massive opportunity here i mean agriculture specifically is around 11 percent of all you know greenhouse gas emissions that we're working to mitigate. And when you see the challenge that this, you know, massive trillion dollar sector is facing and mitigating those emissions, but also the opportunity that the sector has to sequester carbon, to rebuild soil health, to invest in clean water. I mean, there's just this greenfield opportunity ahead of us. And it all comes down to enabling farmers to adopt better business practices. And these regenerative or sustainable ag practices are great for the business and they're also great for the environment. They're really a win-win. But the main blocker we've seen to having farmers actually adopt those practices is access to capital uh, to de-risk these new business practices. And that piece is something that I've personally experienced growing up on an Angus beef cattle farm in Virginia as a kid and helping my dad out on the farm. One of the things we struggled with the most was the business side of the business, you know, organizing all of our finances and applying for grants that could help us invest in the sustainability of our farm. When uh, I was a teenager, we actually finally got one of those grants and it was amazing for our, our landscape and for our farm business because what it funded was new electric fencing and water systems that enabled us to then graze our cattle in a more holistic pattern that actually cycles soil carbon, invests in the organic matter of the soil and the water retention so that we actually can produce more higher yields of grass. And as a result, graze our cattle outside longer throughout the year without having to buy hay. And 
that saved us a lot of money. And it also was great for the land and great for the cattle. And when wins like that, I think, are what really inspire me. You know, growing up in this context, I was fascinated by, you know, how can we invest in the landscape to bring resilience and opportunity for all, really all creatures inhabiting that landscape. And so farm raise itself is a tool that enables farmers to have more efficient access to capital and better tools to manage their business so that they can then be more profitable, more environmentally resilient, and ideally, you know, operating with a level of social equity as well in terms of their ability to access the resources they need to thrive. So I gave you some context on, you know, what informs me in the business. What, what, what else would you like to know? Tell me more about, you mentioned as your personal experience with applying for and receiving one of these grants, but that I understand is one of the sources, potential sources of capital for farmers, but it's not always easy to tap into. Um, mm -hmm. But tell me, I think you mentioned they're called conservation grants. So will you tell our listeners who are not familiar with their, what are conservation grants? What do they help conserve? <laughs> yeah, this, that's a, a wonderful question. So just to kind of put the landscape together, there are hundreds of billions of dollars available or out on the market in terms of private debt, government grants, private grants, cost share programs from the state and local government, all that all, all basically funding opportunities that farmers can access and then put to use on their land. The challenge is a lot of these programs have a, a, a great number of very bureaucratic forms and uh, confusing jargon embedded in the application process. And applying for these programs can take a really long time and be a huge stressor and a point of confusion and a headache for the farmer, but they also are really important to the farm because they are incentives that help the farmer actually invest in that sustainability piece. And that conservation funding program that you're asking about, I think is a, a, a critical one. It's about every year, the US Department of Agriculture offers a few billion dollars in conservation funding support directly to farmers to invest in soil health practices like the ones we did on my operation. These are practices that can include cover cropping, you know, planting a crop on a field during an off-season period when the field would otherwise be exposed and fallow, planting a crop so that you can actually reinvest in the organic matter of the soil. During that time, it can include sustainable grazing. It can include precision agriculture and better nutrient management and application to in improve energy efficiency. It can also in include things like not no-till, low-till, or transitions to organic. So this program is actually administered by the Natural Resources Conservation Service, which is the conservation wing of the USDA. It's a fantastic program. It's heavily oversubscribed every year, but farmers really, really struggle to, especially small farmers or new farmers, struggle with the paperwork and how, and really struggle with being competitive in this grant program. It just received a new infusion of capital. Actually, there was an announcement with the Inflation Reduction Act that that program is going to get another $8 billion in funding, which is awesome. So that should you know make it a little less competitive, but the paperwork and the uncertainty remain. So you mentioned in the past, at least it was oversubscribed, meaning that there are more farmers who were trying, wanted access to those funds than, than funds are available. So again, hopefully that's, it eases it up with the new money that's been allocated there. But I guess one question I want to understand is, you know, you mentioned there's a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of paperwork and just stuff to get through, paperwork to get through. Is it also something that's 
what what kind of lead times are we talking about? Like I think about my perspective is, oh, I'm going to borrow money. I'm going to get a mortgage, you know, and I know I'm familiar with that process. Is it something like that or is it a much longer process? Yeah, depending on what funding program you're applying for, it can be as fast as, you know, a, a few weeks or as long as 12 to 18 months. And when we're talking about conservation funding from the USDA, these program timelines lean more toward the latter, these long wait times. And this is a challenge for farmers because like any small business operator, they're applying for this capital to de-risk innovation in their business. They have a project in mind and they know that in order to make sure that project is carried out in the least risky way, they need an injection of cash to help fund those upfront costs. And the challenge with these massive conservation funding programs is that there's so much uncertainty when the farmer applies. They don't know exactly when the program will be approved and it may take months before they get to a yes or a no, which makes it really hard to plan ahead. There are definitely opportunities in the private sector to mitigate that. You know, Once you have a better sense of what farmers are the most competitive, there are private lending options that you could offer to mitigate that risk as the farmer waits. But the current, you know, the status quo right now is really hard for farmers who are trying to plan ahead and de-risk these sustainable transitions on their farms. Something else that I wonder is that are there established best practices? As you mentioned, there's a variety of things that a farmer could do. Are there are there guidelines out there of, you know, kind of this is the best practice depending on what your uh, what type of animals you're raising or what types of crops you're planting or how does that work? That is you know, this is a thing about this field that has become absolutely fascinating to me as I've just gone in deeper and deeper. And what I've learned over the past few years helping farmers apply for these programs is there actually is an established list of best practices and what the government calls resource priority concerns. And that is a fancy name for the types of sustainable practices that the government elevates as especially important when a farmer is applying for this funding. And if the farmer indicates that they want to do one of those practices on their applications, can make them extra competitive. The challenge is these resource priority concerns differ across states and localities. So Mm. what a concern is in the Central Valley of California is going to be very different than a farmer operating on the outskirts of the Mojave Desert. There's just, you know, they're completely different, you know, resource constraints in that area. And so some counties prioritize water, others prioritize wildlife. And you really have to read into the legalese as a farmer in order to know which types of practices are going to make you the most competitive to get that funding and hope that they line up with your vision for your farm business too. Wow. I think that's interesting because I to know, first of all, there are best practice, these guidelines available, but it is very much a very regional, which makes sense if you think about how big the U.S. is and how different our geographies are um, across the, the, the big country. And something I want to revisit that you mentioned, you talked about also improving social equity. Yes. Will you tell us more about that? Absolutely. So what's really fascinating in agriculture right now is there is a generational shift that's happening. And when you hear about it on the news, what we often see is oh my gosh, there's like this headline about farmers aging out, the baby boomer mm-hmm. farmers aging out and who's going to take over those farms. Oh my gosh, there's a lot of anxiety around that in the media. 
What I don't see as much of, but I would love to see covered because this is a data point that wowed me in the last agricultural census, is that almost a million of the 3.4 million farmers who are operating today are either young or beginning farmers. This is a new wave of farmers coming in. Almost a third of all farmers out there fit this category. And they are uh, young, they are more diverse, and they are incredibly innovative in the way they run their businesses, which means they are probably digitally native. And they also want to experiment with some of these innovative regenerative agriculture practices. I, in many ways, I think this is a very hopeful time in farming as you're seeing so many new farmers looking to get into the space. And with COVID and the addition of remote work, I think you're going to see more and more farm operators popping up all over the U.S. as folks transition into doing part-time, maybe then full-time farming as they you know, make that move. So there's a lot of opportunity there. And as we look at this new crop of farmers who are more diverse, who are younger, we also see this particular segment facing barriers and accessing capital from the USDA. One, because they're startup farmers, they don't yet have a farm farm number registered with the USDA. They have to go through that process. They may not have an existing, most of them who are just beginning actually don't have an existing relationship with the USDA. And we found that farmers who know someone at their local office who is looking out for them and give them an alert when a new funding pool opens, those farmers are especially competitive to get to funding because they're in the know. But these new and beginning farmers are not as you know, plugged in yet, and they don't necessarily know the ropes. And so at FarmRaise, our goal is actually to specifically go after that segment of farmers who are currently underrepresented, who are young, beginning farmers of color, women farmers, who may have been, uh, you know, not, I don't think left behind is the right word, but overlooked in past decades, and now bring them into a place where it's easier for them to just plug and play with these funding programs and to apply with confidence to know what how the system works and to really work the system to grow their farm businesses and to be competitive. That gets me really excited, this element of social equity. You know, our mission at FarmRaise is restoring vitality in farming, farming communities, and it's really a three-pillar thing. The social equity piece is huge, and then environmental resilience and profitability being those uh, second, those two, two other stool eggs. Would you say with the, the users of the, of the farm raise platform, do you see that same representation of like that same percentage or of diverse minority of whether they're female or minority um, farmers? We do. We do. In the last analysis I did, we were looking at 4x the number of um, farmers of color on our platform versus what we saw reflected in participation rates in USDA programs. And then we also see an amazing representation of women farmers. Depending on the month, we fluctuate around 49 to 52% of our users are, are female farmers. Um, so there's a, a great number of women on there as well. And then when you say a new farmer, maybe a part-time farmer, I mean, can you give me, can you describe it a little bit more just so I have kind of something more tangible, more visual? Like, what does that mean? Does it mean you just have a couple of acres that you're just starting off as a hobby as for your weekend? <laughs> just, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. So for us, we think about farm f- farmers in a few different categories. We, have, we almost mm-hmm. think of them as care, composite, like 
customer segments, if you will. Mm -hmm. So the first segment that we see coming to farmers a lot, but we actually can't serve right now is aspiring farmers, like someone who's Mm -hmm. decided they want to be a farmer, they want to learn more, they want to buy a farm and get started. This is a tough segment for us to work with right now because it's really risky and there's not a lot of capital out there for that type of farmer. You want to ideally lend to or give a grant to someone who has more of a track record. So that's one segment. And then there's another segment, which is the beginning farmer segment. And these are farmers with between one to 10 years of farming experience. Most of them have at this point acquired land, acquired sale, or they, they, they have some sales as well and showing that they have some you know markers of a healthy business. The full-time part, part-time thing is tough because mm-hmm. a ton of farmers have side hustles or other jobs they work like construction mm-hmm. or they do custom work. And so I think, you know, when you look at the ag census, a number of those farmers will be working side hustles. And so that's less important to us than do they depend on the farm as a meaningful source of income? And are they bringing in sales that help to support, you know, the, the, them as individuals or their family? And then what percentage would you say of farm race subscribers is more of the, like the start or the beginning farmer? more than the kind that I'm thinking of what I typically think of is, you know, really established family farms, huge amount of acreage where you're just driving and just go, the fields go on and on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So our typical user does have a few hundred acres, but they are really diversified in their approach. And I think this plugs back into the concept of being innovative as a farm operator and that really being the target segment we're going after. So while they do have, you know, small to mid-size operations are most, you know, common user, they are really, really innovative. And even if they're not beginners, we find that they have like a beginner's mindset in their approach to farming. They're curious, they're looking to learn more and more. We certainly have farmers that have smaller operations as well, and they can be maybe a microgreen or a vertical farmer in an urban area, or they can and be you know a, a small diversified veggie uh, farm that has 10 acres and maybe some chickens so and, and then on the other side you have we have customers who have thousands of acres and are mm-hmm. operating those you know nutrient high density protein crops in the midwest so there's diversity but i'd say that target that we have is around a few hundred acres and several years at least of experience I was having um, an interesting conversation with the director of a startup incubator, and I was asking her, "What is what do we need more of to accelerate change? What do we or do, what is what's missing?" And it was an interesting challenge where it's kind of chicken under the egg. Do you get the funding first, or do you have the project the project or the pilot first? You uh-huh. know, and it's kind of how do you get funding for the pilot? It's kind of this chicken or egg thing. But it yeah. sounds like with with farming, you really need to have some type of established farm in order to get the funding. Something started at least. Like you said, yes. it's not so much for the aspiring, but it's really you have something and you really want to improve it and grow it. Ideally, you have some sort of existing asset, whether it's land or equipment or you've identified land that you can rent. Yeah. That said, there are programs from the USDA that are fantastic for farmers who don't yet have that land asset yet. Um, One I would point to is the Farm Service Agency microloan program. These are really low interest loans that help beginning farmers acquire land just to get started. And what they need to show is that they have some experience working on a farm, but it's not necessarily their farm. So that that is one program that I we point a lot of users to, and we actually help a number of users apply for as well. Something other, another connection I was thinking about is, I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of ESG linked loans or sustainability linked loans, but they're outcome based. So a yeah. company may 
borrow money and it's tied to, let's say, greenhouse gas reduction. And if they reduce it by X percentage, then they have this interest rate. If yeah. they have another percentage, maybe they have a better interest rate. If they don't meet their goals, you know, they have a higher interest rate. But it's a little bit, you know, it it incentivizes that outcome. Are are most of these programs based on kind of the outcome as well? Like you, how much you're able to save or reduce, or is it more based on the, the implementation of a, a new activity or equipment or whatever I, whatever it is? How, how does it typically work? Currently for USGA programs, it's mostly practice-based. So you're getting paid to okay. do a practice regardless of the outcome. Um, there are folks on the inside who are looking at that closely and thinking through whether that's the right model moving forward. But currently it's more practice-based. But there are also private funds that are really innovative and doing super cool things, I think, to spur and incentivize soil health practices through the way Mm -hmm. they lend to farmers. One example of that is replant capital. Another Mm -hmm. example of that is Mad Agriculture's perennial fund and the whole Mad Ag paradigm. These are funds that are lending to farmers to specifically implement soil health practices or to fund operations that are geared toward, you know, organic or regenerative farming. And so we're really excited to link our farmer customers up with those innovative programs, especially in conjunction with some of the government programs, because what I found is farmers like the practice-based incentive model as much as they appreciate, you know, also having an outcomes base tied to, a, you know, another program stacked on it because farmers require some predictability. They like to have that predictability. You know, if I change this business practice, I can count on this thing happening, or at least I can, uh, I can bet on it. Like any small business owner, they want to be as, you know, a risk averse as possible. Absolutely. There's so many other variables that they need to deal with that. Um, yeah, exactly. that I mean, more than right. It's 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 agriculture. It's ranching. There's so many other variables out of their control. There's um, so I can much. see why they would want that one under exactly. <laughs> well defined. Dealing with the markets or dealing with weather. They're dealing with climate change. Like there's so much that really is out of their control. And farmers are great about taking on risk. I think they are really smart about it. They have their own predictive model depending on the business that you know, that helps them make decisions, but they are also, you know, want to be as, as thoughtful about that as possible. So any way they can curb risk outside of, you know, all, all the other risk buckets are taking on, the more empowered they're going to be to be successful and also to be less anxious. You know, farming is such a, such a tough profession mentally too. And, there's so much loneliness in the profession and there's a lot of just uncertainty. They're, they're really like the truest entrepreneurs in the, in the sense that they're dealing with all sorts of unknowns and just like doing the best they can to navigate a situation that is unique to them, given you know where they are geographically and the natural resource assets they're working with. And so the more that we can work with farmers to help them de-risk their decisions, the more confidence they have. And I really believe the more successful their operation will be. What do you think we need more of? I mean, it sounds like there's some cool innovation in the financing aspect happening, Mm -hmm. but is there enough funding from the start or do we just need more of this kind of interesting financial innovation? Would you, would you, or maybe, maybe it's all of the above. (laughs) We absolutely need more funding. The flagship conservation program is is still oversubscribed. And we see that often large operations take a a, a larger chunk of that funding than the small operations do proportionally. And that's really, really challenging when you look at that pie going toward these large successful operations. And while these small and mid-sized, more fledgling operators that often do really invest in sustainability aren't 
getting that, uh, you know, that source of capital, which they so desperately need. And so that is one piece that I think could be tweaked, certainly is more funding specifically targeted at small and mid-sized farmers. But there's also an opportunity to stack public and private capital more efficiently to achieve these outcomes. And that's something that I think we can lean into more as a country. Jace, if people want to learn more about farm race, of course, they can go to the website. Are there any other resources that you would recommend our listeners visiting to learn more about either farm race or agriculture in the United States in general? Yeah, um, check out our blog on farmraise.com because we've highlighted some of the major challenges farmers are facing right now and ways that they can hack those challenges. So we write articles from a farmer-centric perspective, so you can learn a ton about how farmers think about risk, how they're dealing with ways to uplevel their business in a more regenerative and profitable way by tuning into that blog. We're also trying to highlight farmers that we're working with so you can get more resources on there as well as some of the capital partners that we love referring farmers to and some of the really innovative stuff that they're doing. So I'd say check out the blog. We're trying to, to emulate, uh, you know, a, a very sort of for, farmer, um, farmer forward approach there in terms of just giving farmers the most actionable and relevant knowledge that they can, they need to, to be successful. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being my guest today. This is fascinating. We, I think you might be one of our first or second guests talking about sustainable agriculture, but it's something that we don't get to explore often. So I really appreciate you making the time. Thank you so much for having me, Amanda. It's been wonderful to chat. And I love that you're bringing in this agricultural you know, lens to the ESG world because it's such an important part of the, you know, solving the greenhouse gas emission behemoth. And it's essential to, um, you know, ensuring the, the safe, safeguarding really the future of the world, making sure we yes. can eat. So we have enough food to eat. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Great. Thanks again to our sponsor, EarthUp whose mission is to make sustainability a part of everyone's job so companies can meet their emissions goals. Visit them at earthup.eco.